try starting out a career as a stock picker in 07. How about that? How about that for timing on your career? Yeah. So, <laughs> That's when I get into real estate too. <laughs> <laughs> you win. <laughs> Hello, you have stumbled onto another episode of Get Your Fill, Financial Independence and Long Life, where we strive for ways to achieve those two goals, and we invite our friends on to help us. And today we have, oh, shoot, I was going to make sure I pronounced your name right there, Catherine, but let me let me make a stab at it, and you can correct me. <laughs> today, I'm really excited to be joined by Sarah Catherine Gutierrez. Perfect. Oh, I did it. <laughs> Who has just written a fantastic new book, First save 10. Is that, no, it's more, there's more words. Tell me, I'm sorry. Tell me the exact name. It's called, but first save 10, but first save 10. Yes. And we're going to get into all that, but first I want to remind you that the links that we talk about, including how to get in touch with Sarah Catherine and how to buy the book are all going to be on the website, getyourfillpodcast.com. And it'll also be in the show notes for wherever you listen. So before we started, Sarah Catherine and I were talking about, uh, her beautiful accent. <laughs> no, I actually would like to amend that statement. I was talking about your amazing accent, which I love uh, from my brief time living in Boston. And it's just one of the most unique accents. And I love your podcast for its content, but also secondarily, just, just to hear that amazing accent. Well, thank you on both counts. And I was going to say that I didn't think I had an accent because when I first, you know, some in, in some of my incarnations, I traveled a lot around the U.S. and actually all around the world. And the first thing that happens is you get that beaten out of you because no one understands what you're saying, you know, like the bar, what's the bar, you know, you want to go to the bar, you know, things like that. And people just do not understand. So I, I thought that I had like completely whitewashed that and just, you know. <laughs> but I guess not. Okay, so let me put you on the spot. Like let like lay it on thick. Let's hear it. Can you do it? Well, no. <laughs> yeah. It would be but you know what happens because my family, I grew up in New Hampshire or New Hampshire, if whichever you prefer. And so when I'm around my family a lot, then I do sort of lose a few R's and put some in, in unexpected places like pizza. But you know, it, it you know, it, it you can put pizza together with other words better if it has an R at the end. Just saying. Oh great. <laughs> pizza and beer and beer <laughs> and ice cream pizza and ice oh, no you'd, you'd have the r in ice cream yeah yeah it's because it's in the middle it's just the end ones that just we, we don't have time for a lot of time for that you yeah. guys move so fast like <laughs> nobody has time for those r's agreed so enough digression sarah Catherine, tell me about your history what prompted you what got you excited about the idea of sharing this financial knowledge with the world, with others? Well, okay. So my, uh, my start to the financial world was as a sell-side stock analyst. And I thought I was going to do that the rest of my life. And if anybody has looked, has like turned on a show about stocks, you know that, you know, at least 90% of it is going to be crazy jargon or phrases that are just very inside baseball. And I remember being so intimidated when I was starting the job, like I couldn't eat. Like, I just was so worried that like, maybe I didn't have the intellect for it. And then it comes to find out, like, it's really, it's, it's nothing rocket science. That's what's amazing. It's like, we've just made up words to make things sound hard. Like, like we call, you know, like, you know, medium-sized companies. We don't call them medium-sized companies. We call them mid-cap companies. <laughs> I mean, come on, like who can make this stuff up? So you like hear someone talking about, you know, what's your asset allocation and inflation, you know, your expected inflation adjusted rate of return of your mid cap value fund. I mean, like, come on people, like what, what are you saying? And we like roll those words around like they're normal. And here's the big problem. So much emphasis on investing is sucking the oxygen out of what people should be actually thinking about and actually learning about and there is one thing and one thing only, and that is you have to spend less than you make. And because no rate of return, no fantastic, what's that new hot stock? Stock Is it GameStop or something? No hot stock is going to grow your money. 
if you don't have money to save. Like, right? That's that's. I know that sounds so basic, but you know, nudge that amazing book on behavioral finance. You know, they say people spend more time picking their tennis racket than they do their savings rate. So anyway, here I was in this career that you know I was. It was getting demystified little by little by little, and I was like, wow, incredible. And then you know. Try starting out a career as a stock picker in 07. How about that? How about that for timing on your career? Yeah. So, That's when I get into real estate too. <laughs> you win. <laughs> because I was a defense analyst and we were in two wars. And so actually uh, our, um, our stocks held up, you know, fairly okay during that time, sadly. But, um, but anyway, the, the interesting part of it was it was the very housing crash that led to me starting a business and something I didn't know anything about. It was because I realized that if you wanted to go buy a house, that every person along the way had a pretty significant conflict of interest against you. They wanted you to buy the house as big as possible and as quickly as possible and, and whether or not you could afford it. And so I thought, where could you go if you're like, man, I'm thinking about buying a house. Like, who can I talk to? Like, my mom and dad don't know anything about this. Um, who can I talk to? There's nobody, right? Like, everyone has it is commission based. Otherwise, you know, the AUM people that are financial planners, you got to have five hundred thousand dollars stuffed under your mattress before you can talk to them because they need to make five thousand in AUM fees on you. With yeah. a 1% fee, there's no place to go. Yeah. So that's what launched this whole thing is I thought, you know what? The world needs some place that people can go and write a check and just say, hey, I'm about to make the biggest purchase in my life. Can I sit down with you for a second and talk about it and just pay you? And so that's what I did. Um, everyone said it wouldn't work. And um, they were 100% right. It was not working for like six years. And then it took off. Because as people learned about conflicts of interest, it became, the, I don't know if you remember the fiduciary rule, but all of a sudden people started saying, wait a minute, what do you mean you can give me advice and it's actually not in my best interest? What is that all about? When that hit, that's when we started getting people saying, wait a minute, there's no catch in this. Like I just write a check for advice and you give it. Yes, that's correct. And so now we're one of the largest um, retainer-based, you know, fee per hour services out there. Uh, we have a few financial planners here that just do it full time and it's a lot of fun. But I'll tell you the inspiration for the book comes on the other business that we started four years ago, doing company retirement plans. So if you think about the clientele that we have in, you know, that are writing the checks for full financial planning, a lot of those are young physicians who have a lot of student loan debt. No one will touch them for financial planning. They wouldn't make people money for at least a decade. So we have a lot of physicians who come to us. So anyway, here we are working with maybe a resident making 60,000 and very careful planning. They come out, they come into their attending year, you know, making real money is what they call it. And they start saving 20, 25 or 30%. And it's no big deal, right? Cause like they don't know the difference. They've never had that kind of money. Now, you wait a year and you get someone a year out of residency and they're coming in and they could be making $800,000 a year and living paycheck to paycheck. Expanded to fill the available cash. <laughs> That's right. And we all know, now I know people listening to this would just eye roll. I mean, if I had 800,000, imagine what I could do. This is what I'll say to you folks that are saying this right now. If you make $100,000 right now, what would someone making $60,000 say? If I made $100,000, imagine what I could do with that, you know, $40,000 or whatever's after taxes. Someone Absolutely. making $60,000, imagine what someone's making $40,000 would think. Absolutely. This is called Absolutely. adaptation. It has been studied and it's in our brains. So I knew it. I knew that was happening. And I knew if you could capture people at the right time, that you could get them saving. And I realized you don't have, people don't have to be passionate about retirement to save for it. They do not. That is not a prerequisite. 
You, I could care less right now about retirement, but I still save for it, right? The same way I pay my taxes, the same way I pay my health insurance. That's the way I feel about my retirement. I know people are passionate about it. It just becomes it's a habit. A habit. Right? And a norm. Yeah. It is a norm. It is yeah. a norm that I save for retirement in the same way I pay my taxes. Like that's the other thing too. We almost have to set normative behaviors in our brains so that we can really ingrain those habits and believe in those habits. Um, because, you know, if, if someone is accidentally saving for retirement and then they leave their job and they get to a plan that's a little bit harder to save, they're, even though they had the, the habit before, they may not carry it with them unless they deeply understand. Like, I always save 10% no matter what. We'll get to that yeah. in a second. So anyway, I knew about this adaptation business. And so then we were like, okay, there's this other thing that people are not doing a very good job at, and that is retirement plans. So these investment advisors go in, they take on a retirement plan, and they're in charge of the investment list, the menu. And man, those menus, they change all the time. Like, oh, let's get this fund in here. And you know, 90% of these actively managed mutual funds fail to beat their benchmark indexes. So like, bad idea. Bad idea to even focus on that. So we thought, huh, what if we went in and instead of focusing on the investments with target date retirement funds, they're so simple and so easy and they're so appropriate for people. Let's spend 90% of our oxygen on asking people to save. So here's what we did. So the first one we got was a little company with like 60 people. And we went in and we literally sat down with every single person and we personally asked them to save. And we got the results back from the savings on savings. And the average savings rate for the company went up from, I think it was six point something percent to 9%. And it was a huge percentage increase, right? So what we realized in these conversations anecdotally was people were saying, we were the first people in their entire lives who had ever asked them to save. Now, Keep in mind, they had had a retirement plan for over a decade. This was the first time that anybody had point blank sat down with these people and asked them to save. And so what we did is we sold them in group meetings on why you save. Just, I mean, just assuming no one would agree and then, and then went in for the kill in these individual meetings. And even to this day, people are still saving. I mean, we know now, like, again, that nudge book is so good. You know, 90% of people never change their investment allocation or their savings rate for better or for worse. So that's what I realized is this is terrifying. We are in a retirement crisis and the difference between someone being able to retire or not is whether maybe their dad or their mom whispered in their ear before they started their first job to always save 10%. Do you read The Millionaire Next Door or even better one, The Next Millionaire Next Door, which I love even more? Read these stories of how these millionaires are made. It is an aunt or an uncle or a well-timed conversation with a mentor. And they tell them specifically, save 10%, not, oh, don't forget, always save. No, no, no. They give them direct instructions on what to do. And I'm sure those young people were eye rolling, but guess what? They're still listening. So that is what's terrifying to me is that that tiny little nugget of information delivered at the right time by the right person could be the difference between someone having the agony that we are seeing in this horrible retirement crisis. And if, and if anybody is not in agreement that the most horrible financial thing that can happen to you is to not be able to retire on your own terms, come talk to me. But to be able to literally just mechanically, without fuss, without fanfare, just have your deposits automatically put in there, you can care less about it. And it just happens. And you wake up one day able to retire. And I'll tell you one story from a retirement plan. I can take no credit from this because we were doing the enrollment for a retirement plan and a nurse comes in. And so, you know, making a nurse's salary. And she said, you know, I'm in my sixties and I've never really thought about retirement, but I'm starting to get tired. 
And so, uh, yeah, can you tell me how much money I have in my retirement plan? And I said, well, do you want to just log in? She's like, I've never logged in. And I said, okay, uh, that's usually not a great sign. And I was like, well, how much are you saving? Yeah. No idea how much she was saving. Okay, I'll go find out. So I went, found out. And I came into the room and I looked at her and I was like, what if I told you that you could stop working this minute and you have enough money in your retirement account, you could live two retirements or you could double your lifestyle. And she started this like kind of choking cry. It's like, she didn't believe me. And, and I told her, I said like, when did you start saving 15%? And she said, I don't know, I've worked here a long time. And I was like, who told you to do that? And she said, I don't know. I don't even know I was doing it. I was like, come on, someone had to tell you to do it. And she was like, I don't know. Maybe it was the Lord. And I was like, this is it. This is it. This is the story I want everyone to have. Like that shows you, you don't have to have passion. You know, I know that the fire community, which I am very much a part of and love being a part of it, but they're so passionate about it. And I realized that the, the, there are a lot of people looking in from the outside thinking, I wish I could be that fired up about it. I wish I could see a compound interest chart and then have a conversion experience, but that is not everyone. And that is the beauty of being able to enter a retirement plan, get to the right savings rate, and one day wake up able to retire. But first, Save 10 is literally just that roadmap. And it's like, this could probably be done in a page, what I did, like 270 pages. But the deal is, I do believe people deserve the argument of why to save. And they also deserve no jargon and lots of humor. And so that is what I tried to do with the book. And apparently people think that, uh, that I've been able to strike that balance to make it all at the same time accessible as really actionable. Like I'll say, okay, call up HR, it's time. Go increase to 10% if you're not there. And if you're catching up, here are the savings rates you need to get to. And then um, I would love your opinion on this, but the second half of the book, I felt like I couldn't just end at save, right? Save for retirement because, you know, half of people can't get their hands on $400 in emergency and those people might have retirement accounts. Well, guess what's the first place they're going to look in an emergency? And we saw this with the COVID distributions. They look to their retirement, wherever there's cash. So I do believe people ought to adopt a good cash flow management system. There's lots of options out there and I put my favorite one in there. And so I teach that at the end of the book. That's excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it's, you know, another thing that happens, and I would like you to speak to this a little bit, is that, you know, I got old kind of unexpectedly. <laughs> well, you do not look old. Oh, thanks. But I... And it's just sort of crept up on me. And I, you know, I had had a bad history of, you know, leaving a job and cashing out my 401k and taking it with me and, you know, not to the next job, but just to wherever and never quite feeling like uh, I had to rush. And I know there are lots of great charts that show that if you start at 18 or 25 or whatever, but what about the people who didn't? What about the, I think it's 50% of people over 50 who do not have any kind of a nest egg type retirement plan, no passive income stream, no nothing. I mean, is there hope for people like that? Yes. I'm so glad you asked this question. There are so many women that, that have found themselves in the exact situation that you're in. And if you look at the course of their lives, you see that you know, women have had to carry much of the burden of childcare and, you know, sexism in the workplace. I mean, there's so many things that have happened that have made it really difficult for women to accumulate wealth. And a lot of women do find themselves in impossible situations between jobs and have to cash out. This is the most common reason I find is not that people haven't saved a dime, it's that they've saved. But, you know, we change jobs, I think, on average 12 times in our career. So if you're, you know, if you're looking at after three years at a balance of $3,000, you're thinking, I mean, what's $3,000? But you and I know, like, if you look at the compound interest charts, like you have to start somewhere and the most painful, is it T. Boone Pickens that said the first billion is the hardest? I mean, I take his point. 
you know, you got to get over that first $10,000 hurdle there. I mean, those first 10,000 are just painful. I saw someone on social media said, Oh my God, I see my first comma in my retirement plan. (laughs) You know, like those are the hardest savings dollars. And so you're depleting yourself of momentum by cashing out, but we don't obviously learn this. And if you're in an impossible situation, you've lost your job and it's six months till you get a different one. I mean, sometimes that's the only place you have to look. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, a 50-year-old absolutely can catch up. And I'll tell you what a 50-year-old has, and I've talked to lots of 50-year-olds, and what a 50-year-old has, who would have to start saving 30% to catch up, that a 23-year-old does not have, who would only have to save 10% to retire, is that a 50-year-old can actually imagine retiring. And that is all, that is all like, you know, that in 15 years, well, you know, the average retirement age was 62 this last year. And that is not by choice, right? Yeah. That is not by choice. And COVID hit women the hardest, second hardest hit is people over 60. And that is pure ageism. We are the least friendly society for people who are aging the least. It is the harshest. I mean, I had this one person ask me, um, you know, I, my, my parents, you know, took on a lot of debt for me to go to med school and I'm really worried about them. Um, I don't think they're ever going to be able to retire. Could you meet with them to put them on a budget? And I'm like, Mm-mm, no, nope. uh, what? <laughs> come on. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, oh, and then ageism, obviously, like in the workplace. So even if you intend to work the rest of your life, I mean, you have to face the facts that that's the best case scenario if you have no savings. So what what I find is a 50-year-old who sits down and thinks about it for a second, really thinks about it, like plays out the scenario. So what is going to happen? Okay, maybe I can work to 65, maybe 66. And if I have nothing, let's look at social security. Okay, that'll be $2,000 a month. Well, right now I need $6,000 to live. Okay, so where else am I getting money? Maybe an inheritance. Okay, go talk to mom and dad. Mm, turns so out there's how not. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm folks. Right. Maybe they'll die in time for me to retire. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Who wants to base their retirement plan on that? All right, it's a little morbid. <laughs> People do it. So yeah, a 50 year old who sits down and thinks about it, realizes that lifestyle cut is about to come down. And at the same way that kids are not super eager to take care of their parents. And I will say this, like, to be fair, I have a lot of clients who actually do take care of their parents. So these physicians, they budget it. It's, it's, they feel it's their duty. And I think it's very noble. I think it's great. So I I don't want to paint the entire, you know, Gen X millennial generation as as selfish, but we are, but, but you would probably have to agree with this. Like we're not, we don't have that culture of, you know, parents living in the home and, and this kind of duty for the elders and Mm let's ask them because they know everything. Yeah. Right. Right. So anybody that like sits down, thinks about, okay, could I be a burden on my kids? Do I want to be? what's going to happen when they see this happen. And, you know, again, you might say like, well, I hope to work to 70. The problem is you can't count on it. So when you start doing that exercise, it's an, it's an obvious decision. I can reduce my lifestyle by 30% right now. Oh, and I can sleep at night. Hey, that feels good. Or I can live with this low grade constant anxiety. I mean, you know, that's what it is. And I know what that's like, because, you know, before I started saving, I was one of those like paycheck to paycheck, dipping in and out of credit card. And I thought it worked. I remember telling myself this story like, ah, I'm fancy free. It all works. No, 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 it doesn't work. Because then when you live and you like have like with with savings and you have an emergency fund and you're saving for retirement, you're like, oh, this feels good. Feels a little different. (laughs) Feels different. 
you don't, it's that boiling frog thing. You don't realize the anxiety that you have every day. It's on you until you rip the bandaid, you sell a car. I went, I had one couple that went one car, one Uber. Brilliant move. Trade in the car that has the $800 payment with 17% interest. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Funny, we were just What's having this conversation because my boyfriend just got his his uh, insurance bill and he's like, man, he's adding up insurance, you know, what all the other expenses associated with owning a car. And he didn't even have a car payment, but he was thinking, you know, I could Uber, I could borrow your car. I'm like, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> you could Uber. <laughs> you can even lift, but I don't know about the other part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you think about it, a lot of times you're just going back and forth. It's not a big deal. I mean, I need my car for work and stuff, but but I think a lot of people who have who live with someone else could probably get away with you think of how often your car sits in the yard, especially now with COVID, you know, no one's going anywhere anyway. So why not get rid of a car, right? <laughs> you know what, uh, what you're talking about, you know, back to kind of norms and behaviors, you know, that's the biggest block. And, you know, anybody who can't reduce their lifestyle by 30%, is kind of saying, I was put here on the earth with a fixed lifestyle. And this is it. This is, this is the life, this is the only lifestyle I can live. And we know that's a lie. It's our brain. It's our brain telling us that lie. And I'll, I'll give two examples in my own world, um, uh, that I do because I know, you know, I love to spend money. I mean, that it is a, it is, a, it is a deeply held love. I love spending everything I everything I have in my account. And so what we do is we have a side account for my spending and then I get to spend all of that in there. It's a, it's a very satisfying um, exercise for me. So I know how my brain works and it probably works like 80% of the population. And the fact is, is that whatever money is in our accounts, our brains are going to adapt. And, 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 and it's not like we say, oh, I'm making... $10,000 more. What are, what are 10,000 ways I can spend more money? No, what the brain does is that it just starts saying, Oh, what about that new Tesla? I wonder if you could afford that payment or, you know, maybe this is the time to go buy a new house. So even if you had in your head thought, man, if I could just make $10,000 more, man, I would save. That is a lie. So I know that. And I believe that my very work has made me be able to tackle my brain because I have seen it in action so many times and realized like it's so clear to me when I talk to people what the obvious decision is, but man, you get trapped in your own brain circuits and you just see it happening. And you're like, what are my trippy brain circuits? So this cash management system that I teach, I didn't invent it someone else did. I learned it at a conference and I talk about that in the book, but I think it's the best one out there. And it's basically, you pay yourself first, right? You pay yourself first in retirement, you pay yourself first every single month into your emergency fund, pay yourself first in those, some people call them sinking funds, but basically savings accounts. If you own a home, you should be saving for home repairs. Anyway, that's what we do. So you get the money for those intermediate and long-term savings out of your account before your brain can start saying, Ooh, let's go spend it. And then what's left you spend on bills and discretionary. So before I adopted the system, my husband and I had a very detailed, let's say I had a very detailed Excel spreadsheet and um, would track every single thing I was spending on. And, and when we got married, we were spending on and I learned the system and I was like, well, it can't be better than mine. Mine is way more work. And so I was like, I'll do them, I'll do them side by side. Well, I ended up entering the data into the, the new, there's like a planning tool that comes with the system. So I, I put it all in the planning tool and realized that we could have about $600 a week in spending money. And when I say spending, just to clarify what that is, that's like eating out, groceries, fuel, like basically anything that is not a bill and anything that's not you know, prepaid for in one of your savings accounts basically has to come out of this discretionary spending amount. 
And the reason you break it down weekly and not monthly, you know, you pay your bills monthly, everything's paid monthly. It's because when you're talking about spending and making decisions day by day on how much to spend at Starbucks or these things, turns out our brains are really bad at doing that on a monthly basis. Terrible, terrible idea for us to be budgeting with our brains on a monthly basis. So what this guy said is break it down weekly. Pay yourself an allowance every Monday and there's your spending and your brain will slowly get ramped up. Like you'll know how much money you need on Tuesday to make it through. And if you do it on Monday, you know, you don't want to have a crappy weekend. So you're like naturally saving up so that you have a really fun weekend. That's the way this cash management system works. So plugged in the data, it was about $600 a week. So we had money left over every single week. And so then we, my husband and I started getting these goals. You know, I'd started my business. He was looking to start a business. We we're like, wow, okay, well, let's just ramp it down. So we, you know, lowered the amount. And then, you know, we still had, we had even more left over. And then we started having kids. And I'll just like make a long story short. We now have my husband, me, three children and a dog. And we now spend on a weekly basis, $430. Wow. <laughs> and you know, I like to spend, I'm not going to, I am not going to walk around deprived. I mean, like that is not me. I don't, I fire just because like we've been able to make it happen. And I feel like I can live a very fun, you know, spendy lifestyle as spendy as I need it to be, you know, and, and we have a, we have a 30% long-term savings rate that we've been able to achieve over time because we realize that every time we you know, lower the amount we put into that account, our brain, it just naturally adapts. So I know based on this system, like that our brains will absolutely naturally adapt to no matter what amount that is put in front of us. Yeah. And um, I had a second thing I was going to tell you to demonstrate um, that fact. And it has completely escaped me. It'll come back. That's okay. Probably not important. <laughs> so how do you think, well, first of all, who are you speaking to in the book? Who, who is kind of your target audience? Who you're hoping are, is going to read the book? Young women starting their first jobs. Now I've had women of all ages read it and apply everything. And I talk to women. I always give like, here's the, here are the savings rates. If you're catching up here, are the calculators to use, like that's throughout the book. Cause I, I mean, I assume women of all ages are going to read it, but it is so narrowly talking to like a 23 year old woman. Like, I just want her to learn from me, to learn from all the women ahead of her. Like we did not learn this, but we want you to know this because if you start saving right now, 10%, you will never miss it. It's true. You know, when I, when I, when I first looked at the book and started thinking about talking, cause this is something I want to talk about, but oh gosh, I, I wish we had another hour. Um, people, some of us like myself and possibly you as well, because you don't have, you know, you have your own business. Your husband has his own business. I, I don't get any type of normal paycheck. I, n I never know it, with the exception of like, like for, let's forget any of my passive income stuff or anything like that. My, I'd never know how much I'm going to make from one week to the next, if I'm going to make anything from one week to the next, because I do work in a commission-based business. Now, how can you do that? How can people that are in that situation, young entrepreneurs who are just getting started, how can they deal with this uncertainty of it's very hard to budget when you have no clue how much money's coming in? I mean, that is the hardest thing to overcome. There is no easy answer to that. I've worked with real estate agents and, you know, but more established ones. So they've got the history of knowing, well, in a good year, here's what I can make. In a bad year, here's what I can make. And so we set this base case scenario and we have a lot of cash. I mean, when you're in a commission-based business, cash is king. Cash, 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 like have a big pile of it. Don't worry about it not being put to work because it's gonna allow you to have the freedom in your brain to budget even when times are really good and when times are really bad. Because when times, are, so when feast or famine is one of the worst 
ways of of living, right? And and being able to have a budget. Uh, we overemphasize the good times and we de-emphasize the bad when it comes to money, unfortunately. So that's how a lot of people end up in getting really comfortable with debt. I think we should be fundamentally uncomfortable with it. And I mean, like, you know, credit card debt, especially, but lines of credit too. And, you know, people tapping into their houses to, to get by, people get real comfortable with that. So if you have cash or less comfortable saving, spending out of savings, did you know that's like, it's, it's like harder to spend savings than to spend credit. <laughs> well, cause you do, you feel like you're losing something, right? When yeah. You, when you spend on a credit card, you're gaining something. Look, my balance went up. <laughs> yes. And that's actually, I, I like, I give a passionate like argument for using debit cards and not credit cards because your balance is going down. I mean, just fundamentally like that is, you're exactly right. The balance going up is, is a, another brain trick. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's what you have to do is you have to have cash. And so what I've done with people who are in those situations is maybe instead of saving for retirement for like a young person who's commission-based, a lot of young people are, spend your first six months to one year building yourself a buffer. So live it like live like you are just are broke be broke. I I tell everyone, be broke your first year, as broke as you possibly can. Don't buy a new car, get the most broke, like apartment you can get, like two other roommates, live in your parents' basement, like just do it for one year and build yourself a really big emergency fund and buffer. And that's a really good chance to, you know, first of all, see if you're going to be good at sales. And then, you know, and then typically people can uh, know what they're going to make after that. And then, so if you have this cash that can serve as a buffer and you take from it, replenish it, um, then you can have some semblance of a regular budget. And Christine, I'll offer one more thing. And I don't typically tell people this because my cash flow system really is, you know, the, the thing that I think most people ought to do. But for people who are um, entrepreneurs, there is one thing that, um, my husband and I also did that was how, so he was a chemical engineer working 60 hour days and ended up starting a salsa dancing nightclub working wow, one night a week, that's awesome. one night a week, making, <laughs> a the departure. Same, making the same. It was just a brilliant move, wow. but it took cash. It took, it took cash. So what we did was he was the one primarily making money you know, in an early part of the marriage while I was building the business and we were quite frankly paying to work for me to work. And what we were doing is paying ourselves, like he would have his paycheck deposited into his investment account. And then he would pay us, you know, just this, it, we just had an auto transfer from it of just our lifestyle, right? And we lived up. Well, one day I was looking at our tax return. I was like, you made a lot of money, like a lot more than, than before. And like, I, I just never really went into that account because, you know, he brought it into the marriage and there it was all this cash. So as he was getting paid more and more through bonuses and, and promotions, we were still living on the same. And so then, you know, we, we realized we could live on one salary. So then when I started making money again, that was just all saved. And so that's what ultimately led us to being able to start this other business. And, um, you know, we started it three years ago. So talk about timing, man. And who knew that there was going to be one business that a global pandemic, like one business that in a global pandemic, that the state and the federal government would say, it is not legal for people to dance. <laughs> like you yeah, may not. Who could imagine something like that happening? God. Just king, we have an emergency fund and we're going to survive it. You know, how many nightclubs can survive being shut down for 18 months? Now he'll have no so, competition, right? I mean, uh, right? How in on, the world? Everybody's going to have to learn salsa dancing if they want to get out of the house, right? Forget that country dance in Arkansans. You're going to have to start salsaing. <laughs> but that is it. I'm telling you, cash, 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 especially for people wanting to go into more commission-based things or to go out on their own, 
to do what you're talking about with real estate, it's cash. And the more tricks you can play on your brain to build up that pile, the better. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a good idea uh, to do that. You take all the money, put it into an account and basically pay yourself a salary, like you say. And then, you know, obviously you have to keep an eye on it. But, but I know people, adults, you know, people who are in their 50s who are saying, oh, shit, I have to make a sale because my taxes are due. And I oh. think to myself, yeah, I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> Okay, people, if this is you, please run, do not walk to your bank, open up an account and whatever your sale is, put 40% of it into that account, please. Because we will, you have to survive, right? You have to survive on what you have left. So just make sure that what you have left gives you some ability to save. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you think finances are different? Do you think, first of all, and I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think that finances and saving in this whole budgeting financial picture is different for men and women? And if so, in what way? Yeah, so I think that women are far less financially literate and that's not their fault. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't think it, I know it. I mean, I talk about the financial literacy stats. We are not taught it explicitly. We are not um, confirmed that this is a natural thing for us to go into, especially finance. And so, um, and that is a big mistake for society for a lot of reasons. So women are coming out definitely behind. But if you look again back at those financial shows and you see the white men, you know, talking about these things that might be fun. They might be adrenaline inducing. They might fire up that limbic system, but I'm sorry, stock valuation, that is not the focus. So I think what women bring to the table is an affinity and an understanding and a humility. And so the more women go into money, the better off the industry is going to be. We need more women advisors. We need a lot more women advisors who are willing to go into someone's life and see, okay, you're 55 years old and you only have 300,000. Let's, let's talk about how we're going to fix this. Let's look at your budget. Let's, let's think about what cash flow management system might work. These are the conversations that we need to be having. And I think if more women come into the industry, we'll have those conversations more. So yes, there is a difference. And um, I'm just excited about I mean, I think a lot of women are starting to go into this world coming through the financial independence movement. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. I think, um, well, and also, I, I don't know exactly what is spurring it all, but I do know that I think women are becoming more intentional about their retirement, about their finance, about their, you know, I mean, my I'm, women of a certain age, right? We, our plan was you were supposed to just go marry somebody with money. You know what I mean? That's the whole, that's my whole retirement plan, you know? But I just didn't, that didn't agree with me. So then what? What's plan B? You know, we don't talk about plan B. So I, I'm hoping that the women who, who thought that that was the answer and then ended up getting divorced and being in a financial situation that they taught their children their female children, <laughs> that that was not the plan and that you really do need to save yourself. So I think some of those people are growing up now and realizing like, I need to educate myself because the schools don't educate us on finance. The schools don't tell us what to do with our money. So that they're telling their kids, okay, look, you rely on yourself, save your own money and prepare for your own retirement. Imagine that you're never going to meet anybody in your life. Because I was I was actually hesitant to buy my first house because I thought, well, why should I have a house on my own? And then I'm going to get married and then we'll buy a house together. No, the hell with that. <laughs> the, the saddest thing that uh, we're finding is that that message is actually not as powerful as it ought to be. So a UBS report came out that, and I'm going to totally mess up the statistics, but the, it'll be the spirit of it. And they're going to sound precise, but um, let me just give my shot. So it's, I think it's 
of millennial women uh, report that they are not part of the financial decision-making in their household. Eight, I, and again, I think I'm gonna misquote this. 80% of millennials who are single said that after they're married, they would intend to be part of the financial decision-making. And well over 90% of women who are divorced or widowed say that they would recommend that all women be part of long-term financial decision-making and they wish they were. What is going on? What is going on? I mean, women, hello, what happened? Did our foremothers burn their bras for nothing? I mean, what the heck is going on? Okay, so I was at this wedding, sitting next to my husband. It was a beautiful, lovely, sweet wedding. And then the minister said in the vows to the woman, like, do you promise to blah, 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 and then let your husband be the man of the house in doing blah, 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 managing the finances? My husband looks over at me. He grabs my hand. He's like, don't get up. Please don't get up. Like, I'm not going to get up in a wedding. Like, what do you think? I'm going to catch it on the side, though. Yeah. We can't, I can't say that. those things. No. I mean, first of all, it's a terrible plan. It is, a, it, is, it is patently a bad idea. Even if a guy is doing a great job, which they're not doing what a great job. What are the chances job. of that? They're not. They are understaving. They're just not undersaving as much as women are. They are still undersaving. They might be saving for their own demise, but women are going to live 20 years beyond that. 100%. 100%. And, and they're not doing the planning. I mean, it is not, it is not, it is not a good idea. And then he, let's say he is doing a great job. Who wants to be asking their spouse, like, if we can afford this or, and then if you just go spend it, you know, and, and there's not enough money for it. I mean, it's just not a good idea. Like if you're both rowing in the same direction, what a better idea, practically speaking. So, Absolutely. Oh man. yeah. So I think that there's so much that's happening below the surface. You know, that was explicit, but come on, like, I mean, don't you hear other people say these like, oh, my husband handles that smart, educated, Ivy League women. Oh, I, I just, yeah. oh, I, that stuff drives me crazy. I don't want to, uh, I don't even want to go there. You know, it's funny. It's like, it's almost like racism, you know, the sexism that is still there. It's still out there. We all think we're beyond it, but we're not beyond it. It's still right there in our faces. It makes me sad. It really makes me sad. When I was married, my poor husband, he didn't even know how much he made. His check, <laughs> he put it in my hand every week. And it went right in the bank. You never even got to see it. And I did that. I said, here's your savings account. You know, you got 200 bucks a week. Have a ball. <laughs> you put him, you gave him an allowance. Exactly. He was grateful he got anything. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, what do you, this, this idea of like women saving from the grocery money to be able to buy themselves a hat, you know, this is from the 50s. What the heck? Wake up, people. Yeah. And these are women too. I mean, so women's, you know, working in the home, like absolutely need to be a part of every financial decision. Because in many ways, she is making all the major financial decisions. Right. She's making all the purchases. Why wouldn't she be part the of the... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Why isn't she part of the long-term financial plan? Man. All right. Well, I got to get off that because I could, that could turn into an hour-long rant on its own. And I, there's still a couple more things I really want to talk to you about. <laughs> and we're, the clock is ticking. So... Um, so Here's a conversation I've heard a lot of people having and wondering about if you have a certain amount of money, I, I hear a lot of people who have debt talking about, we can't save anything until we pay this bill off. We can't save any money till our student loans are gone. Could you speak to that for just a minute? You know, a woman can have $5,000 in debt or $50,000 in debt and be equally paralyzed when it comes to retirement savings, even if there's a plan for the debt. So the very presence of debt can cause people to not save. So uh, I address this in the book, and it is a it's 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 a little bit of a dance. Um, but you're never going to go broke paying off debt. 
unfortunately, there are some people that have student loan debt that's so burdensome uh, that they really are better off letting that debt ride in the IDR, the income-driven repayment plans, you know, for the 20 or 25 year. Some people are better off refinancing it and paying off in two years. Yeah, forget retirement savings for two years. You're going to pay off your student loans, right? So it's a dance and everybody's going to have to very, make a very personal decision. But if I were doing it, I would want um, I would want to max out my retirement match, get your free money, and then make sure you have an emergency fund, you know, like $1,000, because there's nothing worse than seeing your debt balance go down and then back up. That's mentally, that's tough. And then slay that debt. I mean, if you try to imagine your life without debt, I don't even think your imagination can go there because I have been there when people make that last payment and you just can't imagine it until you're there. It's better than you think. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Sarah Catherine. I really have loved having you. I'd love to have you back for another hour when you have time. Um, because I think there's just so many different tracks we could go down. <laughs> well, I love where your emphasis is. And this is the conversation I want people to be having is on these topics. And I just so appreciate you letting me be a guest on your amazing podcast to have this discussion. This is where it needs to be. Oh, I'm really grateful that you were here. So Sarah Catherine, what is the best way for people to get your book and to get in touch with you and to find your website and all that good stuff? Well, I appreciate that so much. Um, so the book is for sale, um, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and all that. Now you can get a signed copy if you go onto my website, butfirstsave10.com and uh, you can buy direct from my publisher and we are still signing every copy that goes out and, um, I put all of my best mojo in that green pen that, that is signing it. Um, and then I uh, do do a lot of writing on, um, I have a, a blog called ladiesplainingmoney.com and we put everything up on my Instagram. So if you're on Insta and you want some daily inspo for your debt repayment or retirement savings, um, you can uh, hopefully follow me at ladiesplaining.money. And then um, finally, I do, I am a personal finance columnist and you use these exact words, Christine, and I loved it so much. It's called save yourself. Women, we have to do this. We have to save ourselves. And so uh, I do a very technical personal finance writing um, every week into the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Um, and we will, uh, you know, from time to time, we'll put those up on the blog too. And all the links that you talked about, we're going to put them on, uh, they'll be in the description of the podcast. They'll be on the getyourfillpodcast.com. And also no matter where you listen, they'll be in the description there. So thank you so much for being here, Sarah Catherine. Thank you listeners for listening. And I hope you got, I know you got a lot out of this. So make sure that you share this with a person who you love and care about and who you know can benefit from this wonderful wisdom that Sarah Catherine has shared with us today. Thank you so much.